Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, we're back. And let's go to the phones. And joining us is Nate Zolinski. Good morning, Nate. Good morning, Terry. How are you today? They're doing good. Yeah, I continued your nice intros. Did you hear that? I did. I liked it. ISE in person, radio, everything. It's going good. It's going to be a good year. Yeah, I know. I must be getting mellow in my old age or something. I don't know. We'll figure it out. You know, I know we're going to talk mostly walleye fishing, but before we get to that, I want to bring up something that we should mention a couple times today, and that's that I believe Tuesday, the 5th, is the deadline for the draw at 8 p.m. for big game. And, boy, people wait. Sometimes things can happen. They should be on <laughs> their computers this weekend. Don't you agree? I agree, Terry. You know, uh, we have kind of been so caught up. Ice fishing is going strong in the hills. Lakes are opening for walleye. Spring turkeys come in. There's just so much. But we have not talked about the big game draw near as much. Uh, and I agree. Mark that in your calendar. And more so, do it right now. Last year, uh, obviously, I, I don't think, it, you know, people – will complain about CPW, complain about the website, but let's just face it. I I mean, I don't think that there is a server and or a, any site that can handle, you know, hundreds of thousands of of things like that as a last minute. You get that many people on there, things are slow. Um, So with that said, absolutely get on there right now, get on there this afternoon, get on there tomorrow morning. Um, Make sure you do it just where if there's complications, if there's issues, if there's a delay, whatever the case may be, you would have time to adjust uh, and make sure that that draw is, is in and your tags are applied for. So, yes, Tuesday evening is the deadline, but you shouldn't even have to worry about that. Just make sure you do it this weekend. Do it Monday morning to where you're not last minute. You don't have to have fear. Well, you can do it right now because you're going to tell them to go walleye fishing at night anyway, right? Yeah, Terry, I burned the candles at all ends. I am feeling my age today, but I daytime fished yesterday and caught a pile of fish. I nighttime fished, I caught a pile of fish. So depending on where you're going, you have opportunities. If you're going to go to Cherry Creek, I would go during the day, uh, capitalize on that bite. If you're going to Chatfield, I'd put a little more focus on those low light periods for sure. Now, I know we're going to get into talking about what's going on, uh, I had a, uh, somebody that texted in, I believe, or they emailed, I can't remember. They got a hold of us through social media. Either way, they, they fish Chatfield all the time, and they never catch any keep, keeper walleyes. So I gave them an answer. It was social media, but I told them that there are keeper walleyes there. You just have to do it depends on the time of the year and the way you fish. Are you still there? It sounds like you fell down the hill or something. <laughs> Sorry about that. I had to bend over. We're good. Yeah, you are creaky and getting old. <laughs> well, I am, Terry. But, but no, hey. I mean, Chatfield is an unbelievable producer for, for large fish, for keeper fish. Uh, if I was going anywhere right now, I would go to Chatfield for keeper fish. But it's always a fishery that's slightly different. It's always a fishery that's tougher to understand the separation of, you know, male walleyes versus female walleyes. And then I think in the last two years, now we're throwing high water on it, um, which I don't think is going to help a lot of anglers understand that difference. And, you know, where anglers might 
understand or or have more success at like a Cherry Creek because there's not as much deep water. So you go to Cherry Creek, max depths, you know, in that 28 foot in front of the tower. But generally speaking, you're only seeing about 22 feet of water. They just can't hide as much. You go to Chatfield, that whole high water mark now is almost at 90 foot in the deepest basin. Um, those fish can move around. They can separate. They can just, again, live in a suspended manner, and the average angler can struggle finding them and or catching them. So that's the biggest thing. So uh, honestly, if you broke it down into simple, simple tactics for somebody, and you said, okay, number one, you want to catch more big fish, so all bigger fish, keeper-sized fish at Chatfield. The number one rule, if you go out there and you start catching those 15, 16, you probably need to move a little bit because more than likely a lot of those larger females are not hanging out with those younger fish as often. So that's kind of one goal. Two, kind of understanding the concept of fishing suspended targets. So whether you're using crankbaits or, you know, a variety of suspended patterns, uh, those suspended fish are oftentimes where those bigger fish are at. So that's kind of that other big concept. Um, and then, you know, we talk about low light fishing. So yesterday, I daytime fished Cherry Creek, did very well. We'll talk about that. And then I switched to Chatfield at night, did very well. Um, and all of our fish were suspended in that low light period at Chatfield. And as I talked to anglers that were struggling last night at the boat dock on the water, um, the biggest mistake I saw is anglers fishing too deep. Everybody fishes too deep. You have to, one, always be in a suspended mat matter, always have to be above your walleyes. If your walleyes are at six feet below the surface. You want your bait above them, you know, five and a half feet, something like that. So you have to be above your targets. That's kind of a, a major goal as you approach walleyes. Um, and so oftentimes in that low light period, anglers simply miss by, by fishing too deep. So those are some little tips uh, that would take you a long ways when catching those bigger fish, in, or even just those keeper fish at Chatfield. And I know we're going to talk more about the current bite, but then it changes a little bit as you get further into the summer, right? Because those, those little males really get active, and the males that were over the 18-inch limit have been harvested because they're so aggressive. <laughs> I mean, that's it. You know, I mean, you definitely still hold suspended fish on the larger fish almost all year, uh, but you definitely have to be cautious of it. The guys that, or, or the anglers, should say, that go out and have the 50-fish day, 70-fish day, you know, and one, two keepers of that, it's fine if you're enjoying that, but if you are truly looking for, you know, much more success on those larger fish, um, you have to change those tactics. Because again, those bigger fish are not going to compete for that same food source. They're not going to compete with those little fish, the energy of those little fish. So whether they move on to structure and it's really small structure that they can own, small structure that they can dominate, or it's out suspended where they can dominate the food source, um, more than likely just a general rule of thumb, you're not going to have as many big fish associating with those little fish. So just understanding that that separation is key. All right, take us through where we can catch some walleyes today and tomorrow. Absolutely. So you're going out. Again, I fished Chateau Cherry Creek to, to, yesterday, so we'll talk about that first, and we can kind of talk about Pueblo. But Cherry Creek, it is all about the basin bite. You go out there, you're going to see everybody driving in circles in the middle of the lake. It's not hard to find the spot. Um, again, we beat it up. We talked about it at ISC. We talked about it on the show all the time. But those fish are there feeding um, on a bug hatch or a bug insect life. So they're feeding on midge hatch, and a small person of those fish are going to be feeding on blood worms. But regardless... They are in 18 to 20 feet of water. They are feeding literally inches off the bottom, and they're feeding on midges coming out of the mud. So you can use a variety of techniques, and we talk about this all the time, but at the end of the day, trolling crankbaits, 
uh, or a small little paddle tail, small tail wobble bait right on bottom or near bottom is the key. The true tactic is to keep your bait two to three inches off bottom. So you want the ultimate success. You are trolling at 1.2, 1.3 miles an hour, upwards of maybe 1.8, 1.9 miles an hour. Your bait is two inches off bottom and you're going to catch fish. Um, I mean, color matters, uh, bait style matters, but at the end of the day, it's the consistency of two inches off the bottom that will catch you more fish than anything. So keep that in mind. Uh, a lot of anglers will watch other anglers catching fish and they're like, oh, he's got the secret bait. More than likely, that angler is able to hold a consistent speed and therefore put a bait at a consistent level of two inches off bottom and you're going to catch fish. Um, so that's it. We're usually using lead core line to achieve that, but you can do it with a snap weight. You can do it with a keel weight. Uh, so there's a lot of tactics. Now, the one thing I will say right now at this temperature, you know, we're 47, 48 degrees, um, the idea of pulling like a three-way, the idea of pulling a bottom bouncer, in your head it should work, and in theory it should work. It does not create the same success as pulling lead core or a snap weight. So keep that in mind. Um, I wish I had an answer for everybody. I mean, it, everywhere we talk, everyone's like, well, why doesn't this work? And I'm like, I wish I knew. It, it just doesn't. Um, as the water gets a lot warmer, you could pull, uh, you know, a three-way to where you're dragging a weight on bottom, or you could pull a bottom bouncer with a cranker, you know, bait behind it. Uh, but right now, for whatever reason, those fish just simply do not like it. Um, so if you want to have success, again, the, the, a snap weight, lead core, trolling, Small crankbaits, two inches off bottom. That is the current bite right now. Uh, yesterday, it seemed like brighter colors were better. Uh, but even with bright, it was like bright white, uh, you know, or bright pink, bright orange. Uh, but pink and solid white were the two hottest colors. Yesterday, uh, that can change by the hour. That can change by the day. Uh, but yesterday, it was a bright white and a bright pink, and that's what caught those fish at Cherry Creek. But very consistent in the basin, two inches off bottom. Uh, that bite is going to last for a solid month. Uh, so if, if you're on the verge of like, oh, man, I don't know if I really want to invest in lead core gear. I don't know if I want to do it. Um, I mean, that bite at Cherry Creek's been going since I've been guiding it for 22 years and since I've been fishing it my entire life. Uh, I mean, it's been, you know, since the lake opened, that bite existed. Uh, there's a bite with lead core at Chatfield right now in the basin in mud. There's a bite at Pueblo in the basin on mud. So uh, lead core is one of those things that if you're willing to take the investment, you're willing to troll, it's going to catch you a lot of fish in the spring. You know, Nate, I'll offer one thing that, um, when you're, I used to fish those basin fish at Cherry Creek when I lived down there. And I firmly believe, even though you're trolling slower and with different types of action baits, that one of the reasons you're competing with what you talked about, the blood worms, the insects, and also that for the bigger fish, the shad, because they can still eat last year's shad. But I think what happens with the crankbaits is you get a better reaction bite than you do pulling a bottom bouncer yeah. Or even put, I think that crankbait that doesn't have that anything that close to it that is really alerting the fish, they just get a sudden reaction to that crankbait. I agree 100%. I mean, just cranks in general produce bigger fish, but that reaction definitely helps out this time of year. All right, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, oh, no, you're good. And then as we move over to Chatfield, um, we have a variety of bites. I would say at Chatfield, we're probably sitting at a 50-50 ratio. So you are probably at 
50% of your walleye population is done spawning and in a post-spawn state, 50% of your fish are still in that spawning mode. Um, yesterday, I didn't see any pre-spawn fish. Um, a couple days before fishing offshore, we saw a few pre-spawn fish, but at the end of the day, we were definitely losing that pre-spawn bite, uh, you know, majority 50-50 split between spawning fish and post-spawning fish. So if you have a fish that is recently post-spawned out, so it just spawned out, uh, those fish are putting a major priority on feeding on shad at low light periods of the day. So early, late in the day and or at night. Uh, and that's how you're catching those those recently post-spawned fish. If you catch a fish that has been spawned out for a week or two, that fish is starting to gain some energy and we're starting to see those fish, you know, coming up on structure. So they're coming up on, you know, underwater points, uh, road beds, all the, you know, typical submerged structure uh, and they're going to sit on there and feed on shad. I will say that those fish are fewer and far between. Um, within the next week or two, you'll start seeing more of those fish. But right now, if I was going to you know, plan a, a fishing guide for somebody uh, and you'll know, help you dial in something, I would say the next two weeks, I'd put a major focus on low light fishing, uh, suspended baits. And it's all about stick baits. So, you know, minnow style baits, you're pulling, you know, rogues, husky jerks, um, all of that type bait, cutters, um, you know, and there's, there's a wide variety of that bait. But you're looking for a long, slender bait, side-to-side wobble. You are putting it in front of the fish. You are putting it slightly above the fish, and and you're going to have success. And last night, I caught fish on fire tiger. I caught them on clown rogues. I caught them on traditional black and silver style bait. Um, Color last night did not matter near as much as zone or speed. Uh, So we are slow pulling these baits. We're not adding pauses. We're not twitching it. Uh, Again, we're trolling it more than anything. But even if you cast it, cast it and reel it back in. So many anglers overwork a presentation in spring. That water's cold. The energy level of the walleyes is not fantastic. Everybody wants it easy. Those walleyes want a meal that's just sitting right in front of them. So really slow down your cadence. uh, Put the bait right in front of those fish, and you're going to have that success. And with that, uh, again, these fish can get shallow. Um, I mean, our shallowest fish last night came, you know, right around two feet below the surface. Um, if that's a tip for anybody, because again, so many anglers are too deep. Uh, make sure you're above those fish, and that's the biggest thing that will increase your success, especially in that low light period. And low light can be, you know, the last hour or two of evening all night long. Even that first hour or two in the morning is kind of that low light period we're talking about. Real quick, I want to make comment when people may be getting a little confused because you talked about three inches off the bottom with the lead core. And now you're talking about staying <laughs> above the fish. And that's because the two different, the walleyes are getting close to the bottom are feeding on bait that is really on the bottom. They're feeding on yep. the bottom on blood worms and nymphs that are just coming out of the mud. The suspended ones you need to be above are fishing on shad. Is that the case? That's very much true. That is a great point. It is a totally different food source, and those fish are reacting 100% different. So the, the bugs are in the mud. The walleyes are cruising on bottom using their lateral line feet, feeling for them, uh, and then activating them and feeding on them. The suspended bite at night, those shad come up in the water column at night to try to gain light. Uh, and as they come up in that water column, those walleyes are feeding on them as they're coming up uh, really high, just subsurface. All right, we are really out of time, but Nate, you said, how have you, what have you heard about Pueblo and maybe any of the other lakes that have walleyes? 
Same thing. Pueblo is fishing good. Water temperatures are warm. We're probably the same situation there. We're about 50% of the fish are out of spawn in a post-spawn state. 50% are still in it. Um, but we are seeing those fish reacting to structure more so even than our, like our Chatfield or Cherry Creek fish. So I had a handful of anglers that were able to find some fish on structure in the last couple of days uh, and catching them on jigs, you know, paddle tails, curly tails. Uh, so same thing. 50% are spawning. 50% are out. Uh, there's fish on mud flats feeding on those insects that we're pulling lead core for, but there's also fish pulling up on structure, so that's pretty cool about that. Uh, then the Eastern Plains seem to be behind schedule, uh, so Jackson, uh, you know, Sterling, Jumbo, all of those type fisheries bar, uh, a lot of those fish are in pre-spawn state and spawning. We're going to have less post-spawn fish on the Eastern Plains right now, as far as we can tell. All right, we have to go. If people want more, how do they find you? Absolutely. TightlineOutdoors.com, Tightline Outdoors on Facebook. Uh, we've had a lot of anglers asking about guide trips. We do have openings for these bites right now. So night fishing, day fishing, you want to see it firsthand, give us a call, but do it soon. Uh, schedule your trips because we are filling up and we hate it when people call and, uh, you know, hey, we can get you in for next year type thing. So you're interested in the guide trip, call us, email us, get a hold of us, go to the website, uh, just type in Tightline Outdoors, and you'll, you'll figure out how to contact us and we'll get you scheduled. All right, my friend, we'll talk to you next week. Talk to you soon. All right, Nate Zielinski, always a tremendous resource. We're going to take a quick time out. We come back, we're going to change things up as our uh, dog training expert, Ben Garcia, is going to talk about interaction with other dogs and dog parks on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. Let's go to the phones and joining us, our dog training expert from Hideaway Kennels, Ben Garcia. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Terry. It's a beautiful day out. Good day to be out running the dogs, I think. <laughs> it's a beautiful day. Yeah, I think anywhere in the state of Colorado right now, you should feel lucky for this weather. That's for sure. No, it's tremendous out there. And speaking of that great weather, and you know, we talked about it to the ISE show that people just want to get out, start spending personal time together, have this contact. You're going to see a lot of people. It's going to be backyard barbecues, family get togethers, friends getting together. A lot of people acquired dogs or they've got puppies they're training over the last year and they haven't had a lot of interaction with other dogs. So what do you do now when you go to these get togethers and there's other dogs there and you bring your dog or somebody brings their dog to your house? Yeah, it's a great, great question, and it, it, it's something we all do and all enjoy being outside with our dogs and our friends. And I think the main thing to really pay attention to is if the dogs have never met before, the thing to do is you, you don't want to meet them at the front door. You know, you don't want to walk in with your dog on a leash, the other dog's there, because that dog has no idea who lives in that house, who that other dog is. It's ultimately an intruder intruding their space. So the best thing I think to do is to have them meet in the backyard. Have them both on a leash, go in the backyard, go through the gate. It's a big open area. Nobody feels intimidated or closed because dogs are just like us. If you're, if you're in a tight spot and you don't know what's going on, your nervous system just starts firing off. So if they're in the backyard, it's open. Let them smell each other, kind of have a distance. Then once they, you can decide they get along, then I start letting them off and letting them play and letting them do what dogs need to do, which is interacting with each other. Now, is there anything you should be aware of as far as dog interaction? Now, we're going to be have we have people yeah. listening that have that have just dogs that are house dogs and pets or companion dogs or even service dogs, and then there's dogs we are 
training to be excellent hunting dogs, which we discipline a little different and their actions are controlled a little different. Like I go to the neighbors, the neighbors in my backyard have a great dog, but they spend time out there throwing things, playing with it all the time. So right. if I take my dog over, what do I have to be aware of in these situations? Well, two. So one is if you some things to watch for. I mean, if you obviously have a dog that's aggressive, that's got its hair up on its back, it's growling, it's snapping, not a good time to let the leash go or to get a ball out, you know. And um, generally what I would do is if I had a young dog I was training for, let's say, hunting, and then, you know, you generally want, don't want dogs pulling on a bird with another dog on a retrieve. So if there was a rope toy out or something that I felt could take my training backwards, I would just keep my dog on my leash and have him lay down next to me and work on my sit and stays, let him go say hi to people. Um, if you just have a family dog, you know, there's things to pay attention to. Is if one's being too rough, you know, if one's being aggressive, then generally you want to give them some more time. And, and there's nothing to say that they have to start playing in the first 20 seconds they're around each other. I mean, you can keep them on a leash for a while, letting them warm up to each other, and then generally once they're calmed down, then let them off. But there's definitely things, you know, if, depending on the training you're doing, you want to pay attention to. I mean, if you're having a dog, let's say that's a service dog, that you're having trained for somebody with, with a, a disability or a special need, you don't want it breaking out of protocol and going to play wrestle with other dogs because that trainers work so hard on that. So I think a general conversation before the barbecue is great. Like, hey, I've got this puppy I'm working, you know, for being a service dog. I need it to lay down next to me. Can you keep your pup in a crate and we'll just rotate? You know, I mean, there's, there's conversation before have beforehand that could definitely save some, some bad experiences or some experiences to learn from. So, What about... If they're both just family dogs. Now, hunting dogs, we're going to try to get more discipline. We, there's certain behaviors that we want to make sure we, we train out of them. We don't want them, like you said, pulling on birds. We don't want them not bringing toys back to us. Um, we don't want to do a lot of certain toys we don't even want them to play with. But what about if it's just a family dog and the dog seems to be getting along? Kid, is it okay for them to tug and roughhouse and stuff a little bit? Yeah, I yeah, exactly. Unless it's starting to get, you know, I mean, like I was talking about, like, if you have a family member that's, you know, a little bit older and a little bit more fragile, I don't know if I'd have two 80-pound labs or, or dogs running around, running into people's knees, you know. I mean, so it's also know who's present in there. But, yeah, generally on just a house dog, they can go back there and play or just relax. I mean, some we've had some friends over to bring their dogs and the dogs kind of play or they just go sit in a corner and just kind of hang out with everybody, you know? So definitely that's what you want to have dogs for is to interact, but you just kind of want to know where you're going and what's going on. Or if you have, let's say like you have a bigger dog, you have a really large dog and they have a little four foot, three foot fence and they're next to a road. That's an analyzation of, should I really let my dog off leash here? You know, or do I need to have a, a, an e-collar on them? All right. And you just really need to understand your dog and take it slow when you first get there. Right. Yeah, and just give them space. You know, I mean, if you think about it, like if you walk into somebody's hallway or the front door and you've got your dog on a leash, their dog's running around and you're hugging them and saying hi and those dogs are trying to figure out who it is, you're going to have a problem right there. You know, I mean, because ultimately they don't know. I mean, they're, they're pack animals. They've packed in that house with you and they don't know who's coming in unless it's a dog they grew up with or they know really well. But if it's family you haven't seen in a couple of years and you're going in, generally the backyard is the place to do that. Now, what about, I know you have some strong opinions on this, so a lot of people take their dogs to dog parks to get them to socialize. What do you think, what do you think about that? Well, you know, I mean, it's going to happen now because we're in warm weather and everybody wants to get their dog out and exercise. 
but it's, um, you know, everybody says, well, I take my dog to a dog park to get him exercise and let him burn off some stuff. And, and you're going to sit there for 20 minutes watching your dog run around and, and not learn any good behaviors being there. And that's 20 minutes you could have worked obedience. I mean, mental exercise in dogs sometimes is way more important than physical exercise. And so, um, you know, I don't, I, the reason why I'm not a fan of them is there's no, there's no control there and there's no knowing who else you're there with. I mean, we have a really nice dog in for training right now who, who got attacked at a dog park and, um, it really did some, some physical damage and some emotional damage to her, you know, that we're having to work through and some training being around other dogs because, and just, she didn't do anything. Another dog got her and luckily the owners were able to work it out and there wasn't a problem, but I, I would rather see somebody if they have 20 minutes in the morning, go out and work your dog mentally. I mean, you can mentally wear them down where physically they don't need to burn off energy and try to balance that out. So maybe the morning you're doing your obedience work at a park compared to the dog park. And then in the afternoon, you and your dog go for a run, you and your dog go for a walk. Because really, if you think about it in human aspect, you're just sitting there standing, letting your dog run around. And you both could be getting exercises if you, if you both went for a walk together, you know, and all you're going to teach the dog is get there, go run around, you know, have chaos and no, no organization. And that's what you're setting up for when that family comes over for a barbecue. You know I mean? If your dog all knows when it sees another dog is to play and play roughhouse. That's what you're going to have when you have guests over. All right, my friend, we are running out of time, but if people would yeah. like to get a dog trained or find out more about you or from you, how do they get a hold of you and how do they find you? Yeah. Yeah, they can find us on the web at hideawaykennels.com or on Facebook at Hideaway Kennels. All right, my friend, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Terry. Have a good one. You bet. Ben Garcia, always great information. Uh, I'll post, as I do a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the uh, interviews, the segments we do, I'll post this on our social media, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook, so you can uh, revisit this if you want to. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we're going to be joined by uh, JR from Colorado Clays, and we're going to get you ready for turkey season starts next weekend. We're going to get you ready for that on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. <laughs> Hey, Bob Seeger, that'll get your toe tapping. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan, brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. Let's go to the phones, and one of our favorite people is joining us from Colorado Clays, J.R. Pierce. Good morning, J.R. And good morning to you, Terry. You know, I know we want to get people ready. Turkey season starts next Saturday, and we're going to help get them online to make sure they're ready. But before we do that... Uh, it wasn't it great to see all the people at the International Sportsman's Exposition? Uh, Terry, you're so right. It was another great year at the uh, mm -hmm. ISC. Uh, we saw lots of folks that we always enjoy seeing, you know, vendors and visitors alike. And, yes, Terry, it was good seeing you and Austin, Nate, and all of the friends of Colorado Clays that were there. But I think more importantly, we had thousands of people stop at the Colorado Clays booth with questions about, all the opportunities that Colorado Clays offers Colorado's firearms enthusiasts. Uh, I think some of the highlights included, first, getting the word out on how our new relationship with Colorado Parks and Wildlife actually works. And most people were excited to hear that even though the state of Colorado now owns the property that we, we sit on, Corey and I have leased that property back and we'll be running Colorado Clays the same as we have been for the past 25 years. So. Of course, it's always good to meet folks who didn't realize that 
Colorado's premier public shooting facility is so close to everyone in the metro area and really most of the front range and offers the finest in, as we always say, rifle, pistol, trap, skeet, wobble trap, and sporting clays. And for anything from an individual to groups of hundreds of people for recreation, competition, corporate events, fundraising, and much more. Uh, it was great to get that word out. And, you know, finally, Terry, I think uh, I did talk with uh, many folks getting ready for a turkey hunt and got them lined out with the Colorado Clay shotgun pattern area to make sure they were not only confident but ready for their hunt. So what a great show it was. Oh, it really was. And I want to talk more about that turkey patterning. You and I talk about this every year, and we, we've talked about it even over the last few weeks. And with the availability of ammunition, sometimes in question, people need to buy the ammunition they're going to hunt with, hope they're going to find enough to pattern. And then getting out on that patterning board will tell them a story that a lot of times they won't even believe, will it? Uh, Terry, so correct. So the Colorado Place shotgun pattern area is really the perfect place to verify or confirm that the combination of your gun, your ammunition, and your choke choice are achieving the desired results for the type of shooting you're doing. And, and even though I always recommend that anyone with a shotgun who has not patterned their gun should spend a session on the pattern area, I feel it's particularly important if you're planning on a turkey hunt. And, you know, Terry, there's many things that can be tested or observed or even confirmed, but more importantly, these results can be altered and improved to increase your effective range and your chance for success. And I will say, Terry, we've tested hundreds and hundreds of guns over the years, and I'll give some general information here that could be helpful. So, you know, the first thing we're going to determine is our point of aim and point of impact. And that, what I mean by that is if you have a good stance, a good gun mount, a proper sight picture, and a good shot and follow through, uh, where is your pattern landing relative to where you are aiming or holding your gun? So let's say 50-50, meaning 50% of your pattern was above below, left, and right of your hold point. That means your pattern, your hold point was dead center. Now, I will say this, um, people should know, most of the guns that we test generally run 60-40 or 70-30 percentage-wise to the high side. But I will say some of the brand new guns we have tested come right out of the box over 90% high. And uh, that is just the ultimate reason, number one, to come take some shot on that patterning area. Things that can affect um, your point of aim impact are the gun fit, uh, meaning the gun fits you properly and your head's down on the gun and you're shooting where you're looking. And as we've talked about many times, Terry, that can be affected by the clothing you wear, um, your shooting position. We have noticed, as we've said in the past, that the sitting position tends to have people shoot more toward the high side than the um, benched, you know, sitting position or standing. And of course, some of these uh, types of sights people are using nowadays. Uh, oftentimes, when you use a clip-on sight, 
it raises the sight, which lowers the barrel. Sometimes this can be a benefit and sometimes a detriment, depending on where your gun patterns originally. So if you're going to change a sight on a gun, be sure you get out here and verify your point of impact. Our second thing we're looking for is our pattern diameter at a given range, which in turn determines your pattern density based on the number of pellets in your load. So two of the factors that will determine your pattern density, meaning the number of pellets on your target and your effectiveness at a given range, will be your choke constriction and the weight of shot charge in your chosen ammo. And what I mean by choke constriction is uh, how much your choke necks down the shot charge as it goes through the end of the barrel. Easy analogy is imagine pouring water into a funnel and it necks it down. That's what's happening with your barrel. Now, as far as chokes, very important information. We have seen over the years our best patterns come out of a turkey tube, meaning a turkey-specific choke tube, and particularly the aftermarket specialty tubes um, are designed just for that. Uh, Those tend to give the best patterns for a turkey hunting situation. Often people do have full and extra full chokes that came with their gun. They work fine, but they do tend to limit the effective range of your shot versus using an aftermarket choke. So them are definitely worth spending the money on. Uh, The other factor, of course, is your ammunition. Now, there are many choices that will perform well with a turkey tube, but the most consistent and dense patterns seem to occur with turkey-specific ammunition. And we've noticed that faster is not necessarily better, Terry. Sometimes the faster um, stuff comes out of the choke, the more it can blow a pattern apart and decrease the number of pellets on target. Now, turkey loads uh, tend to have heavier charges, uh, most of the time slower muzzle velocities and good controlled powder burn rates, and uh, they tend to give the best patterning results with a given choke and gun. Uh, Most people are using somewhere in the five shot, but many of these new blends offer the best of both worlds, meaning they have heavier shot and lighter shot. So there's many pellets on target, but still some heavier shot for uh, foot pounds of energy. Now, over the years, Terry, the gun itself has not been as big a factor as the ammo and the choke tube selection. Uh, It's kind of a known fact that most of the muzzle velocity is attained in the first 18 inches of a barrel, so barrel length and gun type tend not to be as big a variable in the effectiveness of your combination. Uh, that seems to be a personal preference thing, and I encourage everybody to still check it out and maybe even try different guns. And one thing, Terry, I think I should tell everyone is that one thing about coming to the Colorado Clays pattern area is that it can really help you in judging distance. Because even though we may know how our gun performs at a distance, many people are not able to judge distance well without the range fire and a range finder in a, uh, a snap situation. And oftentimes, just coming out into the Colorado Clays pattern area, you'll start getting a feel for what is your effective range and what it looks like across the ground. So definitely get out here and test those guns. I have a couple questions I want to follow up on with you. <clears throat> One is, as you've been testing these guns, and I know it's going to vary by choke, by gun, and by shot, but what types of effective ranges? You know, I hear people say, I can 
my gun's effective out to 60 yards or 70 yards. Some will say, I never take a shot over 30 yards. Is there a kind of a sweet spot range that you've seen? I know it's going to vary, but what types of ranges can you achieve? Okay, so Terry, that's a great question. I will say uh, it's much, much less rare that anybody has an effective range in the 50 to 70 yards versus the average because most people are coming out with whatever ammo they could find using the factory chokes that came with their gun. 30 to 40 yards um, to have multiple pellets on target is more realistic for most people. I have seen some 20 gauges that came out with a custom choke, uh, turkey-specific ammo, and had a great pattern at 50 yards. I've seen many guns that uh, no doubt 50 to 60 and possibly 65, 70, but as a general rule, Terry, I think uh, 30 to 40 yards is going to be pretty much a guaranteed clean kill. After that, you need to spend the time and make certain that you have the right combination, that you have the number of pellets on target to make uh, a very effective clean kill. Now, we're almost out of time, but my last comment is going to be, it starts next Saturday. If you don't have enough ammo to pattern your gun and to hunt, you need to go now. I know Jack's told me they got in quite a bit of turkey ammo. I don't know how well it's holding up, but go down and talk to them. Try to get enough ammo so you can pattern and hunt with the same ammo because that is so critical. Don't you agree? I totally agree, Terry. And it is so vital, as you said, that a person patterns their gun with the ammo they are going to be hunting with. So make a good selection on your choke, the best you can do, the best you can afford. Come to Colorado Clays. Take Sometimes it only takes a couple shots um, to make certain of your effective range, your point of aim, your point of impact, and pattern density, and go out into the woods confident uh, that uh, you know what your effective range is and that you can make a very clean kill at that range. We are out of time, my friend. If uh, people want more information, how do they find you? Please give us a call, 303 659 7117 or go to coloradoclays.com check out our website everything you need to know is there take the virtual tour if you haven't seen our facility but by all means terry get out here and uh, have some fun all right my friend we'll talk to you in a couple weeks all right thank you terry all right jr pierce from colorado clays folks uh and the prices they charge to do this are so minimal you won't believe how little you'll charge they charge to do some shooting out there. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we'll wrap up this edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. When love has got you down and the world's crashing all around, you can always count on me. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Count On Me is a song from the Wickstrom and Dobreth EP that is streaming on all the major streaming services right now. We'd appreciate it if you would give it a listen. A couple things before we wrap things up here today. I want to again say thanks to all the folks that came by the International Sportsman's Exposition. It was so great to see you all in person again. It's been a long time, and, and it was so wonderful to chat with you and get caught up. We, Karen and I both really enjoyed that. 
Big game hunting draw. Tuesday at 8 o'clock is the deadline. Don't wait. The system could crash or get slowed down, and uh, you could not get what you want. Get on it this weekend. Get it done. Don't miss out on that draw, so make sure you do that. Facebook. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube, all right? We take, if you follow Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook, a lot of what you hear on this show, we post links to the podcast so you can revisit it. We also tell you what's coming up on new shows. We give you answers to trivia. When we give away gifts, we have up-to-the-minute reports. If we get out in the field, we tell you right away what's going on. And we just keep you attuned of any special things coming up on the show. And Karen posts links to our videos on our YouTube channel, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom. So a lot of that going on. But right now, I want to find out if Mr. Dan Jacobs is in the studio. I am Terry, and I wanted to ask you, how did the uh, Rod and Reel giveaway for the kids go? I thought that was really cool you guys did that. How did that go? It, it, it went so fantastic. Because of Eagle Claw and all the Rods and Reels they gave, and Jack's Outdoors giving tackle boxes, and Karen and I working with some other people like Brad Peterson and Austin Parr, and the people at ISE to fill tackle boxes that we put together, over, close to 100 kids left wow. that show with new fishing gear That's that they're awesome. going to get out and start using here hopefully this week. So it, it, seeing a smile on their face, Dan, meant more to me than anything else we accomplish all year long in this show. It's just incredible to see the, the smile and the anticipation on those kids. So it went tremendously well. Good on you. I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I have a quick um a quick question for you about the Broncos. You know, I'm hearing all these people going, oh, the Chiefs got rid of Tyreek Hill. It's good. They're going to be so much easier to beat now. Well, they got like 10 million draft picks. And I think the Chiefs were doing the smart thing, the same thing the Broncos are going to have to do once we redo Wilson's contract. And that is if you have that generational quarterback that you have to pay, you can't keep some of the higher priced players and they love Tyreek Hill, but trying to pay him was mean would have meant detriment to the rest of the team. They can use those draft picks now to get quality players that can fill in from underneath at a much lower price. Don't you agree? Right. It was just getting to a point where you know they just had to make a decision. Like, how much money can you commit to a dependent position when you have a quarterback that's going to live? He's going to find other weapons. He just is. He just does. He's just that good. So, yeah, I, I, you know, you hate to see if you're a Chiefs fan, you would hate to lose a guy like Tyreek Hill. But I agree with you, Terry. Um, it's uh, it's an unfortunate, you, know, you just, I think they made the, the right decision. And he's not an easy replaceable guy, but he is a replaceable guy. Right. And with the number of draft picks they got, you may not get another Tyreek Hill, but you're going to get some weapons if you draft carefully. You're going to get some misses but you're going to get some weapons. The last thing before I let you go, is your enthusiasm down a little bit for the draft because the Broncos don't have a first-round pick? Um, no, I'm excited to see oh, how many, contri- you know, this is what we've heard about George Payton. This is how he shines. And so, no, I'm, I'm, I'm still interested to see how he can really um, get some good value out of, um, out of the draft. Now, by the way, Terry, before you hang up, in about an hour... We will be debuting the new theme song for the Dan Jacobs Show, written by Wickstrom and Dobrith. So you want to make sure you're listening from, uh, you know, I don't know if you're going to be on the way to a lake or something, but you'll be want to be tuned in. In an hour? What's wrong with now? 
No, we gotta get. We gotta hype it up. We gotta. There's a little bit of anticipation, so we have to. All right. You know, we gotta. You know, we gotta let the listeners get ready because we're gonna give. We're gonna give it. The, you know, the attention that it deserves to unveil. It's gonna get a proper unveiling. Well, it was a lot of fun writing that for you, Dan, and I'm sure you're going to give shameless, shame, shameless plugs to Wickstrom and Dobrith on streaming services so people go listen to our music. Absolutely. <laughs> you need all the help you can get, Terry. Uh, <laughs> well, that's that's been said more often than not. So now you're going to make me tune in and listen to your show. Yes. <laughs> I do anyway, so that's great. I will let you go. We'll close this out and so Ty can get to the top of the hour ID. Thank you, Dan. Yes, sir. All right. Dan Jacobs, always a lot of fun. He's, we have a lot of fun together. He needs to make barbecue for me and invite me over, though. I'm going to tell him that next time we're on together. Thanks for listening. We're on every Saturday, 9 to 11, unless we get bumped over to ESPN. We'll let the Eagles take us to the top of the hour. We'll, we'll pass the top of the hour to Dan Jacobs and sports on 104.3 The Fan.